Well, we're back here in the Gospel of John. And just a reminder that the Gospel according to John is calling us to believe in Jesus and find life in Him. And in doing so, uh, this book is answering some questions. We say believe uh, in Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? The book is trying to answer that question. Just who, who is Jesus? Uh, we are to believe in Jesus. Well, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? What is the nature of true saving faith? John's trying to answer that for us. Believe in Jesus and find life in him. What is the life that Jesus is offering to us? What does it look like? And so John is answering those questions, and they are answered again for us in various ways here in the sixth chapter of John as we witness Jesus feed a large crowd of people one afternoon, uh, then that evening go and walk on water and meet his disciples there in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and then finally the next day offer a very difficult bit of teaching, uh, a teaching that actually caused many to, who profess to follow him to turn and to walk away. Uh, each of these stories from a roughly 24-hour period are connected to one another. John has put them here together for a purpose, and so we cannot understand them in isolation. Uh, the miracles inform the teaching, and the teaching uh, in, in foreshad is foreshadowed in the miracles. And for that reason, we're going to continue to try to seek to connect these stories in the coming weeks, and our understanding of the signs that we look at today will probably grow as we look at the teaching that comes in the rest of the chapter. Just a reminder that we shouldn't just read the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and expect that that's the only thing that's there. It's connected in this flow of what John is teaching us. Uh, we can count the two signs that we find in this chapter as the fourth and the fifth in John's gospel, roughly seven signs it would seem in John's gospel. Neither of these are numbered, but the feeding of the 5,000 is called a sign in verse 14. You remember the previous three signs? The first was in Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine. The second was in Cana, where Jesus healed an official son from a distance. And then the last one that we looked at was the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda there in Jerusalem. Uh, we should remember that John has chosen to call these miracles, these healings, signs. This indicates that they have a purpose and the purpose is to point. It's to point to who Jesus is. Just as a street sign that we see while we're driving around tells us where to go or what to do or what to not do, the signs of Jesus, the signs that he does, reveal who he is. And they call us to believe in him in a particular way. Of course, the danger of a miraculous sign is that we're so amazed by the sign itself that we never allow it to point us to the one who has done it. I don't know that there's a parallel in street signs. A street sign so beautiful that you just love the sign and you don't do what it says. I'm not sure that that works, but it could happen here with Jesus's miracles. We become so enamored with the sign, so much so that we fail to see its purpose. And that is in fact the very mistake that many of Jesus's followers make in this passage. They see the sign and that's all they see. They don't see who it's pointing to. But if we would allow these signs to accomplish their purpose, then this is what they say to us here in John 6. They say, in the search for true life, Jesus is the only place we should look. In the search for true life, Jesus is the only place we should look. There's a test in these verses. We're going to see it. It's a test of 
where we should look in our search for life, in our search for salvation. It's a test of where we should search for meaning and satisfaction. And it's a hard test because we find that we may think that we're looking to Jesus for these things when in fact we're only looking to the things that he gives to us. There's a way to come to Jesus only to get what our sinful hearts wanted in the first place and actually miss finding the life that he's offering to us. The disciples struggle a little bit with this test here, though we, we find that they eventually understand who Jesus is and just what he's offering. The crowd proves that they really never seem to get the point. There's almost a shadow that, that goes over this amazing sign that it's revealing the lack of faith that the people had. And all of this, the testing that's happening of the crowd and of the disciples comes to us and it says, well, what about us? What about us? Where will we turn as we seek the joy and the pleasure, the contentment and the peace that our hearts are longing for? Where will we look for our salvation? John tells us that in the search for true life, Jesus is the only place that we should look. Let's read John 6. And I want to read John 6, verses 1 through 21, these twin signs that we find right here at the beginning. John 6, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people can, may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. In the search for life, for true life, 
Jesus is the only place we should look. Here in these first four verses, John does what he often seems to do. Um, He sets the scene. He sets the scene for what's coming uh, and gives us all of the pertinent and the important information that we need to know to make sense of what he's going to say. It's like if you walk in a room and John just sort of points out all of the crucial features so that we can understand the deeper meaning of the story that he's going to tell. And so I just want to point out four things that I think John is highlighting for us so that we can understand what the point of this sign is. The first is the place. The place. Uh, most people say that, say that this event occurred on the Golan Heights, though the exact location is not as important as the general fact that they are in Galilee, which means that they have left the big city of Jerusalem filled with Pharisees, and they have entered the land of Galilee filled with farmers. We've gone from an urban to a rural setting with people who are probably less concerned about Jesus doing miracles on the Sabbath and more concerned about their daily needs of food and clothing and shelter. Now, that's not to say that they don't care about religious matters, but simply to acknowledge that Jesus is ministering to a different group of people with different pressing concerns than in the previous chapter. We could think about the fact that in a few weeks, a number of our students and some leaders from among us are going to go from our large city down to Appalachia. And while human need is the same across all settings, the particular kind of ministry that they're going to do in that more rural setting is different than what they might do here in Louisville in a more urban setting. And I think that's kind of what's happening here. So we notice the the place. Um, And as we talk about the place, we're inevitably talking about the people of that place. So notice next in verse 2, the crowd. The crowd. There's a large crowd following because they saw the signs. Now we've established that they're Galileans. They would be almost exclusively Jewish, if not exclusively Jewish. Uh, John also gives us a peek, though, into their hearts when he says that the reason they were following Jesus was why? Because they had witnessed the miraculous signs that he was doing on the sick. These are signs that are not mentioned specifically in John's gospel. We know that Jesus ministered much in Galilee and he would have performed miraculous healings like the one that he did in Jerusalem at the pool of Bethesda. We find that the people are following Jesus though because of these miracles. This is nothing new to our study, is it? John 2, 23 to 25 again proves very helpful. We read there, now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And so, too, this crowd here in this instance, uh, the nature of their faith seems to be what we have called sign faith and not word faith. They are following Jesus because of what he might be able to do for them, not because of what he says or who he is. This will become all the more apparent in the teaching that begins in verse 22. So you just have to keep it in the back of your mind until we get there next week. But even now, we're sort of invited to place ourselves into this crowd and to ask our own hearts a question. Why am I following Jesus? Why am I following Jesus? Is, is my faith, like this crowd's, rooted primarily in what Jesus will do for me? Or does it go deeper than that? 
Jesus keeps pressing us and he's going to continue to press us, asking what is the nature of true saving faith and just what kind of faith do you have? I'm not sure about you, but for me, suddenly this story that I've seen to be about a picnic on a hillside supplied by Jesus through the generosity of a small boy becomes a test, (laughs) a difficult test about whether or not I believe Jesus because of who he is or because of what he can give me. The miracle becomes a sign that not only points to who Jesus is, but also a sign that points to my own heart and asks about my own faith in Christ. Well, from the the place and then the crowd, our eyes are directed in verse 3 to Jesus. Jesus. Now this verse, verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. It could seem very mundane on the, the surface, but if we dig a little deeper, we begin to see that John is presenting Jesus as the one who is greater than Moses and the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Now, you might wonder where I'm getting that. I, I think if we just consider, consider the similarities between that verse we just read, verse three, and the way that Matthew introduces the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five, chapter one. He says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now there in Matthew 5, there is almost certainly an allusion to Moses and the giving of the law as Jesus goes up onto this mountain, then expounds the principles of his heavenly kingdom. And here as well, our our minds are taken to Mount Sinai, where, where not only was the law received, but as we read earlier, as Ken read for us in Exodus 24, where the elders of Israel were invited to eat in the very presence of God himself, something that this crowd whether they knew it or not, we're about to experience. Moses is also on our mind because of the way that Jesus ended his rebuke of the Pharisees in chapter five. John five, the last three verses, beginning in verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father, he says to the Pharisees. There is one who accuses you, who is it? Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, How will you believe my word? So again, there's a connection here and Moses is in the back of our minds. The Pharisees in that chapter didn't believe Jesus's words, but the conclusion of the crowd after this sign in verse 14 is that Jesus is the prophet. Well, what prophet? The prophet foretold by Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him, to him you shall listen. And if we're not convinced yet that Jesus is setting himself up as the one who is greater than Moses, who offers a a greater exodus, we might say, then the fourth piece of information before the sign is probably, hopefully, going to do it, okay? Uh, We've seen the place, we've seen the crowd, we've seen Jesus. And then finally, in verse 4, John notes the time. Verse 4 simply says, now the feast of the Jews was at hand. Well, what feast? It's the Passover feast. And if the message of this, the, then the message of this feast informs the message of this sign. If the feast in chapter two, uh, where Jesus cleanses and con- cleanses and condemns the temple, if that was also the Passover, then we could conclude that Jesus has been in ministry, public ministry, for a little over a year at this point. However, that's not important as the fact that these events and these uh, teachings are occurring at the the same time that God's people are remembering and celebrating how they had been released from slavery in Egypt and brought through the Red Sea. They are recalling 
the fact that, that they had been rescued from certain death and fed by God himself in the middle of the desert. That's what's on their minds. And not only was this time a time of remembering God's past salvation, but it was a time to look for his present salvation, to look for the Messiah. It was a religious festival, but it was also the nation of Israel's 4th of July, you might say. It was a time that was filled with a renewed longing for a king to come and to release them from the bondage that they were experiencing under the Romans. And so with all of this in mind, we launch into the heart of the story and the sign. We know it's an important story, well, because it's in the scriptures, and if it was just here, we know it was important, but it's the one sign that's recorded in all four gospels. This is the only one that all four gospel writers include. Now, that means it's important, but it also means it's familiar, right? <laughs> it's a story that, that we all know. And so I pray that by God's grace and through his spirit, we might see it with some, some fresh eyes. And so I just want to walk through the story. Um, I don't have a really clear outline, but sometimes that's better with stories, right? You just want to hear the story. And so we'll walk through the story. I'll try to point out some details and some application as we do so, and then we'll end with a couple questions of application. Um, first, things seem to kind of begin here in verse 5 with Jesus looking up, and he sees this crowd coming to him. Maybe that recalls to your mind in John chapter 4. Do you remember he says to look up because the fields are white for harvest and the Samaritans were, uh, where the Samaritan woman was returning with a crowd of people? Um, now it could be that Jesus was going to this mountain because he was seeking some solitude, possibly with his, his disciples so that he could instruct them. It says that he sat down and sitting was the typical position of a teacher. And so he may have gone to this private place in the hopes of offering some very specific instruction for the 12. And yet here comes this crowd of people that are about to interrupt his classroom. And so Jesus, like any good teacher, takes the opportunity to change his lesson plan uh, to fit the circumstance and to teach a more hands-on lesson for the disciples. This signals that, that we should keep the disciples at the forefront of our minds because this miracle and the one that follows it is for more for the disciples than for anyone else. You'll notice that once Jesus feeds the 5,000, we're not invited into any of those little groups to hear the discussion that's happening amongst the people who are eating. No, we stay with the disciples the whole time. And so we're then to ask ourselves, what do these signs say for the, those of us who are seeking to follow Jesus. It's a sign for disciples. Um, the words of verse six make it clear that this is truly a teaching moment when they say that the question of verse six was meant to test Philip, Philip and the other disciples. Jesus uh, is going to test. He sees this massive group of people coming up the hillside. He says to Philip, what's the question there that he says? Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Where are we going to get bread for all these people, Philip? <laughs> Again, verse 6 is clear that he didn't ask this question because he didn't know what he was going to do. He asked this question because he knew what he was going to do. The question, uh, that's the reason he asks it. He just wants to see what the disciples think he should do. That's a good, uh, that's a good tool, isn't it? In discipleship and parenting, um, sometimes we know what we're going to do. Sometimes we know what the right thing to do is, but maybe before we instruct, we should ask a question. Hey, what do you think we should do in this circumstance? What do you think is the right response here? 
a question uh, causes people to learn sometimes better than uh, a statement. Well, Jesus asks a question here. He asks a question of location. Where are we going to get the bread? And Philip gives his answer in terms of money. He says, we don't have enough money to buy enough bread for these people. Uh, a denarii, he said, Darren, he mentioned, we're talking in terms of denarii, which none of you have in your pockets. Uh, a denarii was equivalent to a day's wages in Jesus's day. And so Philip says, as the NIV translates it, eight months wages isn't enough to give everybody a bite. That's how much these 200 denarii would be. So Philip assumes that the way to get this bread is they need to go to a bakery. They need to find a bakery and they need to go buy bread. Because in his mind, a bakery is where you get bread. But the problem, he says, is we don't have enough money to do that. So Philip says, I don't know, it's impossible. (laughs) Where are we getting enough bread? We're not going to get enough bread. It's not going to happen, Jesus. Well, Andrew's nearby and he answers the question as well. He seems to think, if I can imagine, he seems to think, well, if we can't buy enough bread, then maybe somehow there's enough bread amongst all these folks for everyone to to share. He wonders if they can sort of have a a last-minute potluck. Um, But all he seems to find is one boy with a lunch of five small barley loaves and two fish. They're called barley loaves here. I think John is the only one who notes that, so an eyewitness detail. Barley loaves were the the cheapest of the bread options available. They would have been for the poorest of of the poor. And these uh, were not large loaves, maybe more like little scones of sorts. And the fish were small too. They're sardines. This is just one boy's lunch. Uh, Andrew seems at first to have deeper faith than Philip, doesn't he? He brings this boy. I've got something for you, Jesus. But then what does he say? Well, he says, what's this among so many? (laughs) He notes the size of the crowd. He says, I got this, but uh, it's not going to be enough. Coincidentally, those who would look at this passage and deny the miraculous nature of Scripture, um, the, the common solution to what's going on here is they say that it was the generosity of this small boy that, that convicted the crowd into following his lead such that everyone who had brought their lunch but was hoarding it was, was now willing to, to change their mind and to share with the rest of the crowd. Of course, that is nowhere in the text. Um, and actually, I think Andrew's response here proves that they had tried that idea. <laughs> and Andrew says, maybe we can find enough amongst everyone else, and he tries but all he can find is one small lunch. Makes you wonder if people were just so excited to go hear what Jesus had to say, they didn't even think about bringing a lunch. They just showed up and then the day got away from them and they hadn't thought about the fact that they were gonna be there that long. Okay, so what do we make of this test that Jesus is, is having for his disciples? I think again, again and again here in John's Gospel, we find Jesus trying to get people to think in a heavenly way with heavenly wisdom but we are so tied to the earth that we only look to earthly solutions. This is true of the disciples here, and it's true of us. When we're faced with dilemmas in life, what do we do? We often look to our own resources or to the resources of others before we turn to the one who created the world out of nothing and can supply every need that we have. We turn to bakeries and we turn to other people before we turn to Christ. Now, he often uses those things, doesn't he? He uses 
bakeries and other people. He uses them in the same way that my family's needs were met by the cars and the kitchens of so many of you while I was in the Philippines. But each of these things are an extension of the kindness and the provision of Jesus. And it's to him that we must look first and foremost. Now, before we see what Jesus does, I think it's a good question maybe to ask of this text would be, how could the disciples have passed this test? Jesus is testing them, right? And they kind of miss it, it would seem. But what could they have said or done to which Jesus would have said, yep, you got it. You understand what's going on here. I think at the very least, Philip could have said something like, I'm not sure where we're going to get bread, Jesus, um, but I believe, I believe that you can provide enough bread for these people. I believe you can do it. He could have said this. He could have said, I'm not sure what to do, Jesus, but I, I remember something. I was there in Cana. I don't know if you remember that whole thing, but I was there when you turned the water into to wine, and I remember that all that needed to happen was the servants had to just do whatever you told them to do. So we're here, Jesus. Uh, we don't know where to, get, where to get the bread, but we are your servants, and we'll do whatever you tell us to do. And by the way, we found some bread and some fish if you need something to work with. Um, we don't, you don't need it, but we also know that you love to partner with us. You like to use the little bit that we have and then turn it into something amazing. So if you'd like to do that with this, you can use it. Or maybe they could have said, Jesus, we remember, remember at the well when you said you had food to eat that we didn't know about, that your food is to do the will of the Father. We know, Jesus, you can provide food for all these people, but whatever you do, we hope that, you, that it will remind us that, that you satisfy us in a much deeper way than physical bread ever could. I don't know. I think that would have passed the test, maybe. <laughs> but whatever it might have looked like, passing the test would have involved seeing the spiritual and seeing the heavenly more than seeing the physical and the earthly. And so, too, we need to train our hearts to see beyond what is in front of our eyes into the deeper realities of the kingdom. And we do that with these physical desires and our physical needs. We need to take our physical desires, we need to take our everyday needs and see how they point us to Jesus as the one who alone can provide for us. We need to see Jesus not as the one who can just give us whatever we want, like some kind of genie, but as the one, only one who can provide what we, de- what we need most deeply, the things that we can't even see with our eyes, because in the search for true life, Jesus is the only place that we should look. Now, it's at this point in verse 10 that Jesus kind of takes over the situation. The testing is done, and so now he's going to do what he had already decided to do. He has the people sit down on the grass. We're told in the other Gospels they sit down in different small groups. Um, We're told that there was much grass there, and there's going to need to be a lot of grass because the crowd is made up of 5,000 men. Adding in women and children, there may have been 10 15, even 20,000 mouths to feed. What does that look like? I know we've got some uh, Louisville City soccer fans in our church. Uh, And even if you've never been there, then you have seen where they play. You've seen Lynn Family Stadium from the interstate, right? Do you know the capacity, fans? What's the capacity? 15,304. 
<laughs> yes, but 15,304. So in your mind, pack that stadium filled with people and put Jesus and his disciples at center field and have them announce that they are going to feed everyone with the two hot dogs and the five nachos that they got from the concession stand. <laughs> Can you imagine what that would be like? Well, we're told that Jesus took some bread. He took this little five loaves and he gave thanks to God and then he started to just pass it out and then he did the same thing with the fish. He acknowledged that, that God had provided even this little bit of food and then he just started to pass it out. And he used the disciples. He handed it to the disciples and they are the ones that took all the food to the people. That would take some time, wouldn't it? Just these 12 guys taking the food to all these different groups to 15,000 people. Can you imagine? It would have taken a little bit. No, but slowly, everyone is fed. I think the, the giving of thanks is a reminder that, sim that that simple act of giving thanks for our food uh, shapes our hearts to find that God is the one who gives us everything that we need and that God is the one uh, who will meet our need even of salvation. Even as we pray for our food, let us also pray and give thanks for the deeper things that God has given us that that food represents. The miracle itself, I, I find it interesting. It's like the water that was turned into wine um, in that it's very subtle. There's no details about how it happened or just what Jesus did. Jesus broke bread and fish and started handing it out. And you just see him, he just keeps breaking it and it just he just keeps handing it out. He just keeps breaking it, and he keeps handing it out. You'll remember that Philip had hoped that they could get everyone a small bite of food, a little snack to maybe tide them over, but Jesus said that everyone ate until they sat down on the grass, and they said, oh, I'm so full. Last week, my, my last week in the Philippines was a, what they call a boodle fight, where they lay out banana leaves on this, these tables. That's how they used to feed the army, and, and they covered these banana leaves with rice and longanisa and eggplant and okra and there was lots of lumpia which my kids are jealous of and ampalaya which is my favorite and then we all just walked up there and we ate with our hands uh, and we ate until we were full <laughs> uh, and that's how the folks at this gathering ate they ate with their hands and they ate until they were full not only that but there's leftovers right amazing this leftover such that at the command of Jesus, all the disciples grab a basket, a basket probably of some size, and start picking up fragments, 12 full baskets. And of course, that number is no accident. Jesus is teaching them about just who he is and just how much he can give and just how satisfying the life that he offers is. And every disciple gets a hand-on experience of that. They all get a basket, and they all get to gather up the same amount of fragments. And those 12 baskets, again, in light of the Passover, in light of all these allusions to Moses, they must represent something else even deeper. And I think they likely point to Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and of his ability to provide salvation to all the tribes of Israel. I read elsewhere that there's another teaching of, of Mark where there's seven baskets picked up. And some people say that those seven baskets represent the Gentiles, his ability to provide for the Gentiles. That phrase there, though, I, I didn't read this anywhere else, but so you can tell me what you think about it. He says that nothing may be lost. And it reminds me of what we read in John 6, 39, where he promises that of those that the Father gives him, 
nothing will be lost. That he will fully meet the needs of everyone of his people. He will not lose any of them. He will gather them all in. There's a lot of symbolism going on here, isn't there? Announcing that the power and the authority of Jesus, the ability of Jesus to bring life and abundance and satisfaction, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus embodies. And the people see this. And what do they say? They say, this is the prophet. This is the one Moses was talking about. But they see it all in the same way that the disciples saw the question of providing bread for the people. They see it with earthly eyes. And so they see in Jesus a king who can give them exactly what they want. And what do they want? They want food. And they want power. They want the stuff of earth. Jesus looks like a great candidate for a king, doesn't he? Can you imagine his platform? No one will ever lack bread again. That would get you elected, right? And that's not an empty promise like most political promises, is it? Jesus could prove it, and he could do it. So the people are ready to take him and make him their king by force. Do you ever wonder why it only mentions the men, 5,000 men? There's some that say it only mentions the men because they represent the military force that was ready to gather around Jesus and become his army so that they could throw off Roman rule. He has a small army ready to go into battle for him right now if he wants to be king. But Jesus knows their hearts, doesn't he? He knows that they see him as the one who can meet their own desires, not as the one who will give them true salvation. They see him as a king in the same way that Pilate saw Jesus as a king. We read this, John 18, 33 to 37. So Pilate entered his headquarters and again, again, and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. I think Pilate sounds really confused in that passage, doesn't he? And I think this crowd is confused about just who Jesus is. Because what the crowd and Pilate missed was the fact that Jesus was a king in a way they had never imagined. That he was a king whose path to exaltation led through humiliation and death. And the way that he was going to provide salvation, the bread of life, was through crucifixion. Through taking our place and offering himself as a sacrifice so that he could offer us forgiveness and life in his name. So we're told that Jesus, knowing their hearts, slips away, heads back into the mountains to be by himself with his father. Eventually the crowd reluctantly disperses. The matted grass you can see there is the only evidence that they had been there. And then the disciples later on, after Jesus doesn't return off of the mountain, they get into a boat and go across the Sea of Galilee. 
We'll say more about this miracle, I think, next week, the miracle of the walking on the water. But I think we should notice just that, once again, Jesus provides a sign specifically for the disciples. The disciples are the focus here. In fact, they're the only ones here. And Jesus in this reveals in one more, reveals himself in one more miraculous way to them. And possibly we could say in one more Moses, Exodus-like way. How so? Well, water in the scriptures often represents chaos and disorder. So you remember in Genesis 1 that God's spirit is hovering over the face of the waters and God brings order to those chaos waters through his creative word. In the Exodus, God leads his people through the waters on the way out of the promised land. And here, I think Jesus does one better, doesn't he? He doesn't split the waters to cross them. What does he do? He just walks right on top of them. He stands over and above the chaos, and then when he enters into the boat with the disciples, he takes them right to where they needed to be. John's signs are typically tied to a specific teaching of Jesus, but this one doesn't seem to be. Um, however, at the end of John 6, you remember, it, we'll see this um, if you don't remember it, but at the end of John 6, everyone walks away from Jesus, except for the disciples. The disciples stay. And I just wonder if they stay because of these signs. Do they stay because they had picked up those baskets and they had walked around and they had collected those fragments? And, and before that, they had been there when Jesus kept breaking bread and giving it to them. And, and suddenly, they started to see there's something unique about this guy. And they had been there too when, when Jesus was, was walking on top of the waters they started to see that Jesus was not some earthly king who was just going to meet their, their physical needs alone. They started to realize that Jesus was not just the greater Moses. He was greater than Moses because he was God himself. Moses was there when the manna showed up. God's the one that provided. Jesus wasn't just there when the bread showed up. He's the one that provided it. He's greater than Moses because he is God himself. And so maybe the disciples stuck around because they began to see that in the search for true life, <laughs> Jesus is the only place that we should look. Well, there's an obvious call in this passage to believe in Jesus, isn't it? Uh, to believe in him as the one who meets our deepest needs, not, not the needs just of physical bread and sustenance, but the need of spiritual life. Jesus stands on this mountain and he stands on top of the waters and he announces that he is the savior of the world and that in the search for true life, he is the only place we should look. But there's also help here, I think, regarding how we minister to others. Remember, this is a sign for the disciples. I think we can rightly say that for all Christians, all of life is ministry. So from your work done in the church to your work done in your home to your work done at work, from the office to the kitchen, uh, in the classroom, in the morning commute, we're always ministering grace and truth to other people. All of life is ministry. And in all of these regular daily opportunities, Jesus, like here, is testing us. He's asking us, are we going to rely on him? And if we will, are we going to seek to give him to others? So those are the two questions I want to close with just to to contemplate about as we minister to others. As you minister to others, first, are we relying on Jesus? 
Are we relying on Jesus? There are so many temptations to look to other places. There are so many places we can try to find our strength and the supply that we need to do the work of the ministry, to just have the ability to, in our homes to minister Christ, to in our workplaces uh, model who Christ is, to uh, as we drive our cars to have the mind of Christ. There's so many different places that we're tempted to draw strength from, but we find here that Jesus is the one who can give us everything that is required to do the ministry that we need to do. He provides all that we need. He can use what little we have, right? If we give it to him, he can multiply it. We're never going to be lacking. There will always be leftovers when it comes to Jesus because when we're all said and done, we will have more strength even than we thought we did at the beginning. And he'll meet us in any storm. Just think about how hard it was after such a long day of ministry of them handing out that bread over and over again. And then they went on the water and they probably thought they were going to die. They thought, well, I guess it's a good last day to have. But in any storm, Jesus can show up and provide relief for us and take us wherever we need to go in a moment. So are we relying on Jesus as we minister to others? And as we minister to others, are we offering Jesus? Are we offering Jesus? Is it clear as we speak to others that Jesus is the only one who can meet their and our deepest need? Or are we inadvertently leading people into sign faith and not word faith? A faith that, that holds on to the gifts of Jesus, but not Jesus himself. It's a theme that's going to be picked up next week as we look at the teachings of Jesus. And so I encourage you to think about that some more. But for now, can I just say it once more? In the search for true life, Jesus is the only place we should look. And Jesus will provide us with true life as we come to him. Let's take a moment of silence and reflect on God's word. And then I will close this in prayer. Father, even now we anticipate the response of the disciples to Jesus' question, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Lord, would you help us to truly believe that, that you are the only one who can provide us the life that we are looking for. There are so many things we are tempted to find satisfaction in. There are even gifts that you give us that we are tempted to, to worship and to love more than you. So Lord, help us to see in Christ that he is the bread of life. He is the one that will satisfy us. And help us to minister out of the strength that he provides. Help us to rely on, on you, God, as we seek to go about our lives in a way that reflects who you are. Lord, you've given us the opportunity to be your representatives in this world, in the small and the great things that we do. Help us to trust that you will give us the strength to do that, that you're not going to call us into something and then not equip us for it. So help us to rest in you and help us also to offer you to everyone and anyone that we 
come in contact with, that they would see in us someone who is resting in you, but also who is calling others to trust in you. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Even now, I just think about these two brothers who faithfully preached it while I was gone. Thank you that even in my absence, Lord, this church is focused on feasting on your word and finding the truth of, of, of it and changing our lives according to it. May we do that by your grace and through your spirit. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.